You're listening to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, October 24, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Today we bring you to the 2017 Cohen Lecture held on October 13th at the University of Maine. The topic is Assessing the First Year of an Unconventional Presidency. Welcome to the 2017 Cohen Lecture at the University of Maine. I am Richard Powell, Director of the Cohen Institute for Leadership and Public Service and Professor of Political Science here at the University of Maine. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome University of Maine President Susan Hunter. Secretary William Cohen. Secretary Andrew Card. And Ambassador Mark Grossman. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce the president of the University of Maine, Dr. Susan J. Hunter. Dr. Hunter became president July 7, 2014. She also became president of the University of Machain and Machias on July 1, 2017. Dr. Hunter began her full-time career at the University of Maine in 1991 as a faculty member in the Department of Biological Sciences. Her administrative positions included Chair of the Department of Biological Sciences, Associate Provost and Dean for Undergraduate Education, and five years as the Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs and Provost. Immediately prior to her appointment as UMaine's first woman president, Dr. Hunter served as Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs for the University of Maine system. Dr. Hunter. Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the University of Maine. Today, we are honored to host three very distinguished guests who will deliver the 2017 Cohen Lecture. This year's lecture is the 11th in a series of presentations featuring nationally recognized speakers from the highest levels of government, the military, and the media. The Cohen Lecture, which is held every other year, presents for our consideration thoughtful insights from and dialogue among some of today's most remarkable intellects, key decision makers, and keen observers of national and international events. As always, the university community warmly welcomes Secretary William S. Cohen to our stage for this year's Cohen Lecture. Maine is proud to call Secretary Cohen a favorite son. He grew up in Bangor and went on to serve his state and his country in the halls of Congress and the corridors of the Pentagon. Joining Secretary Cohen today is Ambassador Mark Grossman, former Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, and Andrew Carr, Jr., former Chief of Staff to President George W. Bush. It's an honor to have all three of you with us this afternoon to share your perspectives based on your experiences and observations inside the Beltway and across the globe. This is truly an exceptionally accomplished trio. I also want to take a moment to talk about the importance of Secretary Cohen's leadership and legacy that are integral to the fabric of Maine's flagship university here in Orono. 
We are grateful for his model of civic engagement, which can be characterized as ethical, visionary, innovative, thoughtful, independent-minded, and above all else, civil. Upon retiring from public life, Secretary Cohen generously gave Humane his papers chronicling his three decades of public service. Today, those papers, known as the Cohen Archives, are housed in the state's largest library, the Raymond H. Fogler Library, right here on campus. In addition, Secretary Cohen lent his name and support to a center here in Orono known as the William S. Cohen Institute for Leadership and Public Service. I'm very proud of the work of the Cohen Institute, which recognizes the importance of training future generations of young men and women destined for leadership roles in a variety of disciplines. Let me give you one example of the Institute's innovation and excellence. In 2015, the Cohen Institute created a May term course that is taught in Washington, D.C. The class generally has about 15 students in it, and they get an inside look at our federal government and the quality of the leaders who have come from Maine. The students' experiences in Washington range from visits to the Pentagon and the halls of Congress to front row seats at roundtables with the newsmakers of the day. And to top it off is the inspiring and motivating interaction with Secretary Cohen. Mr. Secretary, thank you for what you and your team at the Cohen Group make possible for our students and everyone associated with the Cohen Institute. We appreciate the opportunity to partner with you to offer these outstanding opportunities in the true tradition of our state's land-grant university. I also want to congratulate you on your most recent award, the 2017 Distinguished Citizens Award, presented last night in Bangor by the Katahdin Area Council of Boy Scouts of America. And now it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Secretary Cohen once more to the University of Maine. President Hunter, I should say Madam President, always sounds uh, at least a perspective in nature, never can tell where she's going to, uh, to be. Um, I guess I have you here under false pretenses. It says the Cohen uh, lecture, and today's not going to be a lecture. It's going to be a conversation. Last evening, I should point out uh, Ralph uh, Leonard uh, and his wife Joan um, really were responsible for presenting me with this uh, the Boy Scout uh, Award. And I looked at those young faces out there, and I said, these are the future leaders of our country. Uh, and the values that are being instilled uh, in them are the ones that will serve us well about uh, duty, uh, honor, uh, and country. And so uh, that's something that we want to talk about here today and about leadership. And I am delighted that the university continues to promote the values and the importance of a career in public service and especially the School of Policy and International Affairs, where we had the students for lunch today and asked very penetrating questions. They had the benefit of um, hearing from two of our most uh, really distinguished uh, public servants. Uh, Mark Grossman is part of the, uh, the Cohen Group in Washington, 
He's one of the most distinguished ambassadors we've ever had, ambassador to Turkey, uh, and as you heard, assistant secretary for policy at the uh, State Department, number three ranking at State Department, and one of the most respected diplomats uh, in the history of our country. And uh, you'll want to hear from him more than me today during the course of this conversation. And he'll be um, uh, supported uh, by Andrew Card. Uh, Andy Card uh, is known as being the guy who was there during 9-11 whispering to uh, President George W. Bush because he was the chief of staff responsible for trying to organize and make sure that the White House uh, operated on time and the president kept, kept on his schedule. But uh, in addition to supporting uh, George W. Bush, uh, many people may have forgotten this, but he was involved um, with President H. Uh, Herbert uh, Walker Bush. Uh, and Bush 41 wanted him to be Secretary of Transportation, and he took that job and just did a great job in that position. Know something about FEMA uh, and uh, every other um, aspect of our government. So we were talking about natural uh, disasters and what our role uh, is in responding to them. Uh, Andy Card certainly knows something about that. He happens to uh, hail from Massachusetts, has a place in uh, Poland Spring. Um, he has an accent which is thicker than any Down East man. I swear he's from Maine. Uh, and you'll hear just a touch of that today. He's trying to clean it up a little bit by being an internationalist, but he's really kind of a Down Easter. Uh, and I'm delighted he could be here. And I've asked Felicia Knight. Uh, many of you know Felicia over the years, what a, uh, a great television journalist uh, she has been over the years. Uh, she moderated a number of my debates when I was a candidate for Congress and the Senate. Uh, she went on to uh, work for Senator Collins and uh, is here today at our invitation to pose not a lot of tough questions, but really um, penetrating questions. She's going to be what I call the provocateur today to ask the kind of questions you might ask of us. So Felicia, please come to the, um, the stage and we'll uh, begin our program. Well, welcome, everyone. We have quite a topic before us today. If you looked at your programs or your invitations, we are assessing the first year of an unconventional presidency. Now, several US presidents can be considered unconventional. We've had Andrew Jackson, to some extent Abraham Lincoln, uh, even FDR and Harry Truman. But none has really upended American politics, the federal government, our position in the world, or even our civil discourse, the way Donald Trump has. So our speakers today have decades of experience in the White House, on the world stage, uh, dealing with international issues, national leaders. They have worked for their country in times of crisis, domestic turmoil, international upheaval, and they know what goes on in governing, and they know when politics and personalities should and should not affect policy. And so we are happy to be able to ask them and call on their expertise and ask us what we should think about and what we should understand when we hear and see things happening and coming out of the Trump administration, how this White House affects our, uh, our nation in the global community, and how it affects us as a world leader. So 
I really was going down a different road on how to begin until General Kelly held his news conference yesterday. White House Chief of Staff uh, John Kelly, who doesn't usually speak publicly, felt compelled to give a news conference after a succession of articles from mainstream media, the most recent one coming in Vanity Fair, uh, written by Gabriel Sherman, who wrote a piece quoting uh, unnamed, but saying, quoting uh, sources within the White House, friends of the president, describing, quote, a White House in crisis as advisors struggle to contain a president who seems to be increasingly unfocused and consumed by dark moods. That same article gave other corroboration to the now infamous Rex Tillerson quote about the president, which reportedly came after a meeting with the president where the president called for a tenfold increase in our nuclear arsenal. So, Abraham Lincoln was prone to dark moods. Woodrow Wilson was prone to dark moods. John Adams, notoriously bilious man. Uh, sniping from cabinet secretaries is not new. Thomas Jefferson did his best to undermine George Washington's entire foreign policy. Somehow, this feels different. Secretary Cohen, I will begin with you. Is it different? Is it concerning this perception or reality of chaos that surrounds this White House? Well, I think it is different, and I think we should start from the proposition that um, every institution uh, needs to be challenged. Uh, there is no static perfection in any of our departments, our government, uh, state, federal, local. Uh, it's all, it should be subject to, to challenge. Uh, President Trump came in with the determination that he didn't like what he saw. Uh, but to me, uh, it's one thing to tear down uh, what exists. I, I like to draw the metaphor that if you, it's one thing to, to go in and say, you know, I, I'm in a new house, the White House, I don't like the carpets, I don't like the walls, I think I'll change those, I think I'll make some renovations here and there. Uh, but if you're going to tear the whole thing down, tell me what, who the architect is going to build the next one. Or what are the walls dimensions going to be, or who's going to be the architects that put this together. And I think we haven't heard for what they want to replace it with just yet. So it's different in the sense they want to sweep it away. And I'm prone to quote from John Gardner, uh, who said that um, our institutions have become caught in a savage crossfire between unloving critics and uncritical lovers. <laughs> and it, it's a phraseology which has stayed with me because basically we want, we want critical lovers. We want people who are prepared to criticize the existing status quo but also prepared to love the institutions what they represent. And I don't think we're there. I think we're more in, in, the, in the position of having uh, unloving critics. And so what I want to see is a little more love in terms of the institution, the role they play, the rule of law, uh, and a sense of civility and respect for each other that I think has been absent during the first uh, 10 months or so. Secretary Card, you've been a White House Chief of Staff. What, what's your observation of this? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. And Senator Cohen is one of my heroes, so I'm, <laughs> and I'm thrilled to see all of you here. I love the University of Maine. I love the state of Maine. It's my favorite place to be. Uh, but then why are you in Massachusetts? <laughs> I wanted to be close to my mother when she gave birth. <laughs> I am very passionate about what happens inside another house, the White House. 
And I had the privilege of serving for three presidents there, President Reagan, the first President Bush, and the second President Bush. <clears throat> and I came to recognize that if you work in that building, <clears throat> you are being given a tremendous opportunity to serve the personification of Article II in the Constitution. You're the only, it's the only provision in the Constitution that is personified by one person. That was for dramatic However, <laughs> when you accept an appointment to work at the White House, and it is a very big deal to be appointed to work there, and I've said many times, you don't apply for the job. It's not like the president goes to ZipRecruiter or to Monster.com. He just finds people that he might know and invites them in. They haven't necessarily worked together as a team before, so it's a new experience for almost everybody who shows up. And you get this fancy piece of paper called the commission, and it says the United States of America, your ego goes up. It says your name, the state you're from, the title you have, and then it says you serve at the pleasure of the president for the time being. It's redundant in its insecurity. <laughs> but as soon as you accept the oath of office to meet those responsibilities, you don't work to please the president. You work to help the president do a job. And so if you're working to try to please the president, you're not meeting your responsibilities. And that is something that is hard to recognize when you're inside the building. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. This is the 2017 Cohen Lecture held at the University of Maine earlier this month. I listened with great care to General John Kelly's availability with the press yesterday. And I thought he did a remarkable job of describing the responsibilities that the Chief of Staff has, and he described them exactly as I would have described them. And he gave me comfort that he understands the discipline that is necessary there. I came to recognize that he appreciates some of the frustrations that those of us on the outside have but he did not express those frustrations with anger or angst. I have decided that I am not going to be a cynic about Donald J. Trump. I have found if people are cynical about him, they are not part of the solution, and I want him to succeed. So I have moved from near cynicism to confirmed skepticism, but I am an optimistic skeptic because I want it to work. Explain the difference for us. When you're the President of the United States, you're given a tremendous responsibility, but the responsibility is one of governing, not just leading. And a good leader invites others to be part of the solution, and that is critically important. It was important when Mayor Cohen was mayor of Bangor. It was important when he served at the Secretary of Defense Department because he had to deal with Congress. You try to create a climate for partners to help you govern. And President Trump has got to do more to invite partners as he governs. But the Chief of Staff's job is to bring discipline to the policy process in the White House and to help manage the President's time so that the President can do his job. And then when a tough decision is made, it can be implemented to live up to the President's decision and his expectation. So that's the job, and I think that John Kelly has given discipline to the White House that was desperately needed. There is a better process in place. The process for policy 
is yes about the policy, but it's more about the consequence of the policy so that when it's implemented, there are fewer unintended consequences, and that's critically important. But most of all, I think Donald Trump has come to recognize, maybe not as completely as he should, that words from the White House make a difference, and everyone who works at the White House should taste the words before they spit them out. And he should probably learn to lick his thumb before he hits the send button on his tweet. With that exception, because I don't think he has tasted his words or licked his thumb enough, I think the White House today has the discipline necessary to help the president do his job. And he is on a learning curve because he's never been in a position of governing. He's been a leader of a company that was a family-owned business. Now he is leader of a nation and the leader of the world, and he needs more partners to help bring solutions to reality starting in Washington, D.C. But let's remember, he was elected in part because of the frustration that so many of us had that Washington was just not paying attention to us. He became a wake-up call to Washington, D.C., and as an unconventional president, he is delivering a wake-up call. I just hope that he climbs that learning curve quickly and doesn't create any unintended consequences. Well, that leads me to a question specifically for Ambassador Grossman. Um, talking about people who felt they weren't being heard and that the government was not responsive to their needs. So one of the overarching themes of this presidency is America first. And in his inauguration speech, President Trump said, from this moment on, it is going to be America first. He has since echoed that in other speeches, most notably in his recent speech to the UN, where he said, I will always put America first. So my question is two-pronged. Number one, the phrase America first just in, uh, brings, conjures up images of the pre-World War II group, the America firsters, and that would, that's very dark connotations, a, a bit anti-Semitic, so um, actually very anti-Semitic. So my first question is, why do you think he continues to use it? It, it has been brought to his attention, even if he didn't realize the association, he continues to say America first. And second, what effect do you think this rhetoric has on our relationship with our allies well, first and all, our enemies? Well, first of so. all, like Annie, thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, I, I think that first thing I would say is that this idea that it's something new, that people who represent the United States abroad, either in uniform or as diplomats, or who are public servants in the United States all around the country, somehow didn't put America first for all these years, mm -hmm. uh, I think is really wrong. And certainly in the time that I had the good fortune to represent the United States abroad, the privilege of working at the State Department, I, I would say, and I think all of you, I hope, will know this, the people came to work every day actually saying, what's my responsibility to the United States of America? And how do I promote and how do I promote and defend America's interests? So this idea that this started on the 20th of January, that nobody had thought before that America should be first in our minds, I think is completely incorrect. And, 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 and that's something I hope that over time people will continue to understand. Second, I, I do think that a little bit to follow on what Secretary Card said, if you, thought, if you think about what's unconventional about foreign policy, and you were right, Felicia, to talk about the inauguration speech, you mentioned the speech to the United Nations, I would talk about another part of the speech to the United Nations. And that was where he said, what are my goals here? What's first? Sovereignty. 
and then security, and then prosperity. And the idea now that we have a president, very unconventionally, at least for the past 40 years, to put sovereignty first is unconventional. I think the jury's out, good or bad. Jury's out yet, along with what Secretary Cohen, Secretary Card said about whether you can balance sovereignty and working with all of the other people around this world you have to work with to get anything done around here. But I think that a lot of people felt that this sovereignty question had gone a little bit too far down the agenda. And you see the same thing, not just in the United States, that's what Brexit's about. That's why 11 million people voted for Marie Le Pen in France. And so you see around the world people saying, sovereignty, sovereignty, get it higher up the agenda. And so I think one of the challenges over the next few months and years will be, can he take this unconventional piece, sovereignty to the top, and combine it with a foreign policy that brings us friends and doesn't push them away? So to your question about this phrase, this phrase, as you say, is disturbing if you know the history. Right. And I think it's particularly confusing to our allies. Not because of its phrasing, but because of the way that the president chose to deal with allies in the very beginning. The way he dealt with Mrs. Merkel, the prime minister of, 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 of Britain, a whole range of people, Australia. And so I think over time, you're going to have to figure out some way to be strong and sovereign, absolutely. To be secure, absolutely. To be prosperous, absolutely. But I don't see how you can solve too many problems in the world today without having this group of people, allies, friends, to join you in helping to solve those problems. Do you think those initial affronts can be assuaged? Well, one of the things about being the United States is, is that you know, people are looking to work with us because they want to solve their problems too. Mm -hmm. And so assuaged, I don't know. But will people continue to look for ways to work with the United States? Happily, yes. Okay. Secretary Card, I'm going to throw this one to you. Um, but I want to give you a few stats first. I want to talk about the president's Twitter feed. This is unconventional. We have never seen this before. The president has tweeted specifically about fake news more than 125 times, and his disdain for the media nearly 300 times. That comes out to more than, roughly more than once a day. He has derided global warming as a hoax and a con job 15 times, has tweeted in praise of himself more than 60 times. There's a whole website that archives Trump's tweets. That's <laughs> he has picked fights with senators in his own caucus as well as his own Secretary of State and Attorney General. He's tweeted about North Korea and Kim Jong-un more than 70 times. And I'm going to digress for a moment. Senator Cohen, I remember once I, was, I interviewed you very shortly after you became Secretary of Defense. We were in Washington, and I asked you, what are your immediate concerns? And you said, my public comments. You said, that even more so than as a senator, I realize now that as Secretary of Defense, my body language, what I say, even the inappropriate raising of an eyebrow can take a delicate situation and put it into crisis. I think it's safe to say that the president does not share that sense of nuance. <laughs> so, General Kelly, his chief of staff, has said, has said, I can't control the Twitter feed. The only thing I can control is the information and the people who come and go from the Oval. So, as a former White House chief of staff, do you see this in your skeptical mode, not your cynical mode, do you see this unfettered tweeting 
as something that can lead us into real trouble, not just headlines. The way the president reaches people without having any filter, and I'm not talking about the press, mm -hmm. I'm talking about a filter in the White House, uh, does challenge me. And however, tweeting did not exist when I was serving President Reagan, President Bush, or President Bush, and it really didn't exist with President Clinton, and it didn't exist to the extent that President Obama used it. So this is, it's, this is the unconventional nature of the responsibility that wasn't a convention for anyone before. President it didn't Obama exist. maintained a, so, an official. But no, I, I wish that President Trump would have some way to give himself discipline not to allow his emotions to motivate other emotions. And so instead, I'd love, you know, there's a, there's a position at the White House called Assistant to the President and Staff Secretary. Doesn't sound like a very important job. It is one of the most important jobs in the White House because it is responsible for all words that go in or come out of the Oval Office. And it is a great check on policy and rhetoric. And there's someone in the job named uh, Rob Porter, who is very smart, worked on Capitol Hill for a long time for Senator Orrin Hatch. And he's very, very able. Normally, no communication would go from the Oval Office to the President without going through that staff secretary screen just to consider what is appropriate. That screen doesn't exist today because the President can reach 30 million people without going through anybody, just by tweeting. Yes, had it's changed it, I'm sure it's a frustration for the organization called the executive branch. It is a motivation, good or bad, for the organization called Congress, and it has become a joy for the people that feel the president is talking to us. I don't think we're going to eliminate tweets. I think future presidents will continue to tweet. I don't think that John Kelly is going to be able to eliminate tweets in the White House. I think it's frustrating. It does change the way we do business. But let's admit, we know more about presidents today because of social media, and presidents of the past couldn't have survived with today's social media. So we have to adjust and, and make it happen. Believe me, I wish there was a way to uh, eliminate the president's ability to tweet directly. I'd like him to give careful thought to whatever he says, either on a tweet or through verbal communication, because there are ramifications to every word that comes out. Secretary Cohen, when he became Secretary of Defense, understood firsthand the responsibility of being in a position where, in his case, young men and women could take action that might change their lives forever and cause them to make sacrifices that Bill Cohen or anybody else would ever want to invite on anybody. We come to the point about words. Um, a minor poet once said, the word not spoken goes not unheard. And so it's not only what you say, it's what you don't say that can have grave consequences. For example, Ambassador Grossman has pointed out the President has been critical of the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Chancellor of Germany, uh, Prime Minister of uh, Australia, uh, President of South Korea. Never spoken a word about President Putin. So what do you draw from the words that are not spoken as well as the words that are? 
Uh, and so it makes a difference on, on what word you use, what you fail to use. With our colleague at the Cohen Group, Bob Tyra, says, if the phone doesn't ring, it's me calling. And uh, so when the phone doesn't ring, what does that mean? What is, it, what is the president saying? So uh, let me come back to the use of words uh, and the notion uh, uh, that we have to be, take care what, what the president says on this. Uh, I want uh, the president to um, say, yes, America first. Tell me what country says um, China second, India second, uh, Germany second. Any public official for any country is always going to say, my country first. As Ambassador Grossman pointed out, everybody in our government always puts us first. But you can't be first if you're all alone. And that's the message we really have to get out. You need alliances. You need um, friends uh, in all the right places. And the notion that you are simply going to go it alone because we're number one and we're first. Everybody else step aside, it's not going to work. So building relationships, building alliances, uh, sharing not only objectives but ideals and interests with countries, uh, these are what hold the world together. And if you start breaking it up into pieces or it's only a deal that I can negotiate, just one at a time, then you're seeing the fragmentation of the world political order. So each country now feels, well, uh, we've had too much, too much uh, internationalism. Too many of these elites up here have been talking about how the world is going to work with us playing a major leading role. Time for us to take care of America. Um, again, the nationalism, if it goes to an extreme, uh, is going to serve as a, uh, as a cause for every country. So how do you put a world um, policy together, a world of order together, if everybody is pursuing each individual aims without any need to feel they have to compromise or take another country's interest into effect. So I think words are spoken, become important. Words that are not spoken become important. Uh, but ultimately, it comes down to the tone of what comes out of the president, because he, and at one day, she, um, really, every other country looks to us. They measure our words. They want to know whether we're serious or we're being fr frivolous and take their actions accordingly. So words become very, very important. I don't think there's been that discipline. And what worries me is not that the tweets, it's a way for the president to talk to uh, 50, 100 million people, fine. But he's also doing it in conjunction with degrading trust in the Main Street media. So you have no credibility. You are promoting false facts. And if you have a situation and you're living in a fact-free universe, and when we talk about having alternative facts, then I think we're in a very dangerous position in the world where everybody can interpret anything to be the truth. And there's no standard of credibility or trustworthiness. And ultimately, um, governance depends upon having trust in your leadership, in your institutions, and in your work. And if you don't have that, then we're all at bay and it becomes a uh, uh, law of the jungle. And that's something we really need to, uh, uh, to focus on. So if I could, then I'm going to reiterate the last part of my question. Can this unfettered tweeting lead to something really dangerous? The answer is yes. yes. Of course it can. Uh, it doesn't have to, uh, but any time uh, 
a word is spoken by the president and it's ambiguous. Ambiguity, and again, Ambassador Grossman and Secretary Card will tell you, ambiguity can be advantageous in some circumstances. But if you become ambiguous and you don't set the countries you're talking to, um, speak to them with some clarity, uh, then there's the opportunity for miscalculation. And I, I was rereading uh, Henry Kissinger's White House Years. It's worth the slog. <laughs> it's about 1,500 pages. It's a Stephen King a non-novel. Uh, um, but it's worth every page. And he said, uh, the way he phrased it, he said that an idle threat that is taken seriously can be helpful. But a serious threat that's taken as being idle can be catastrophic. So if you're looking at North Korea, or you're Kim Jong-un, do you take the threat as being idle and therefore ignore it and do what you will in terms of testing and taunting and taking action that might set us on a course of war? Or do you take his fire and brimstone and rain hailing down as being serious? Because one, either way can have pretty vast consequences. So having... Uh, credibility in what you say and taking care. And that's a job of the chief of staff to make sure that everybody is on the same page so that you don't have a secretary of state going out and saying, gee, let's try a diplomatic solution in, uh, in North Korea. And the next tweet is, you're wasting your time, Rex. Forget about it. So what does that do to your secretary of state? What does that do in terms of sending a signal to the North Koreans or to the Chinese are we wasting our time? And if we're wasting our time, what's the alternative? The alternative is military action, in which hundreds of thousands or millions could be killed in a matter of a few hours. So taking care uh, really becomes important, and hopefully uh, the, the president will continue his tweets. But we have to maintain respect for the um, Main Street media. They are subject to criticism like any other institution. But if you lose faith in the people who are busy trying to gather information and synthesize it and try to present it to the American people, and it's all dismissed as being fake, then what's real? What's real at that point? If you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU-FM, and what you're hearing is the 2017 Cohen Lecture at the University of Maine held on October 13th. The topic was Assessing the First Year of an Unconventional Presidency, and the panelists were former Secretary of Defense William S. Cohen, Ambassador Mark Grossman, former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and Andrew H. Card, Jr., former Chief of Staff to President George W. Bush. The moderator was Felicia Knight. Can, well, can I just interject? I, the, the, the social media also changed the media. Yes, The it traditional did. media. When I first went to Washington, D.C., which was 1983, to work for President Reagan, uh, we got our news from ABC, NBC, CBS, Reuters, UPI, Associated Press, and we knew that there was a, a filter, if you will, that the media had. They had to go through an editor to get their work into the newspaper. They used to have to go through TV. several editors. And it used to be a, in, in journalism classes, they said you need, to, you need to have sources. You have to be able to explain not necessarily the name of your source, but the, the nature of your source. You had to convince an editor that it was credible, and you, an editor would usually say you need at least two sources. And when I arrived at the White House, there was a, an announcement made around 
4.30 in the afternoon by the press secretary's office that used to say, the lid is on, the lid is on. That meant no more news that day because the reporters were all rushing to get their work to the editors so it could show up in the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. And there was a palpable a sigh of relief at the White House. No more news that day. I remember when cable television first showed up and they found that if it was the same news all day, nobody paid attention, so they needed to go with news even if it was a little strained. So there was a conscious decision, literally, to say no more requirement of two sources, we can get away with one source. Oh, and boy, that changed the nature of working at the White House because you could always tell someone had one source and they're trolling for a second one. You didn't see them trolling for their first source. They'd get a source. It became news and became an alert on cable news and then everybody had to respond to it. So responses were the news and justified everybody else writing about it. Then more cable news came on and radio talk show came on and they said, we can't even wait for the source. We'll take the rumor. If we can get anyone to respond to a rumor, it is credible. Breaking news. So breaking news, that's what's happened, and then extend it beyond that to the tweet world today, where everybody has a hashtag, and we're supposed to follow our hashes, and <clears throat> a journalist is expected by their publisher to have a Twitter feed, to have a network, and try to get some eyeballs and ears paying attention to you. And if you just put news out, people won't pay attention, put a little commentary with, with it. Use a few more adjectives and adverbs. Clickbait. And I think it's changed the nature of journalism, which then impacts politics. And yes, when I was chief of staff, I can honestly say I can't remember a time when I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, or any other magazine or newspaper and said they got it entirely right. They didn't get it entirely right. And that's one thing I missed. The, people say, what did you miss about being chief of staff? I missed the real news because I knew every day that what I read in the New York Times and the Washington Post didn't reflect the reality that I was experiencing inside the White House. So that's the genesis of the fake news angst that is out there today. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Vladimir Putin, you mentioned North Korea. I want to get into that area as well. And I'm going to direct this to you, uh, Ambassador Grossman. Uh, during the transition period, President Obama said to President Trump, Trump President-elect Trump, North Korea is going to be your greatest headache, your biggest worry, your most urgent problem. Now, you mentioned President Trump's threats to totally destroy North Korea, to rain fire, fury, and power down on a country. Those kinds of tweets and threats are unconventional, to say the least. But looking at the diplomatic efforts that previous presidents have made towards North Korea, they haven't been overly successful in stopping the nuclear program. So North Korea hasn't responded to the diplomacy. Do you think they will respond to the threats? If we begin to engage militarily with North Korea, what does Russia do? What does China do? Where does this all lead us? Well, two things. One is I just wanted to follow up <coughs> on the point that uh, both of our 
both secretaries were making, which is you think it's changed the way news is done, you think it's the way it's changed politics is done, you know, just to show my bias, this social media certainly changed the way diplomacy is done as well. And one of the challenges for students here as they both study and then go on to work in diplomacy is what am I going to do about a diplomacy that's also now subject to Twitter and all of the kinds of social media? Very, very difficult, very challenging for the people who represent us abroad uh, all around the world. Felicity, when you pose the question that way, which is to say, you know, what will North Korea do? Will they be susceptible to diplomacy? I'd change that a little bit because you've got to ask a, a, a question before that, which is what's China going to do? In other words, so what's China thinking today? What does China think about where the president stands on North Korea? What does China believe, as Secretary Cohen said, about threats? And what are the Chinese thinking about their own interests? And so if I'm in kind of any kind of position today thinking about the diplomacy, yes, I'm thinking about North Korea. Absolutely, they're the proximate cause here. But if I'm thinking about the diplomacy to try to deal with North Korea's nuclear question, mostly what I'm thinking about is China, which is to try to say to the Chinese, think about your interests here, right? Is it in your interest for this regime to continue to do what it's doing in the way that it's doing it with these nuclear weapons? That answer's got to be no. And I think one of the things that's been interesting over the past few months, and indeed, if you ask me, one of the successes uh, of the president has been to refocus the question on China, refocus the question on sanctions. And what happened at the UN Security Council? There's now a Security Council vote that both Russia and China agreed to, to really increase sanctions on North Korea. And you're starting to see, I think, a difference in the way the Chinese are dealing with this. So previous diplomacy hasn't worked. Why? I don't think the Chinese were prepared to back previous diplomacy. And the question is now, yes, it's North Korea, but the first question belongs in Beijing. And what does Russia want? Uh, we saw what Russia did in Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, all of you can weigh in on this. Where does Russia come into the North Korean question? Well, I don't know about North I hope that they will see, as they did when they voted for the Security Council resolution, that they too uh, are threatened in some way by... Uh, by a North Korean nuclear program. But I have to say, just to follow up the point that Secretary Cohen was making, I think Russia's view here uh, is that this kind of unconventional president, the kinds of chaos they see in the public in the United States, the weakening of the United States of America, the way the United States has stepped back from certain responsibilities is all to their benefit. And I think that Vladimir Putin would like nothing more to see the end of the European Union. He'd like to see the end of NATO. He'd like to see the end of the transatlantic relationship, and he'd like to see the weakening of the United States of America for any reason. I don't, you'd have to ask him if he was sitting here. But I, I, I don't see any place where we're going to get any much help from them. Well, if we believe intelligence reports, Russia has been working towards weakening the United States political system. Um, Secretary Cohen, do you want to weigh in on that? Well, that's why I raised the issue of all the... <clears throat> criticism directed at our allies, there's been none directed at um, President Putin. And you have to wonder um, why the president has been so hesitant. You, you could take a legitimate position and say, you know, it's really important that we uh, have a good relationship with Russia, big country, 11 time zones. Uh, they have a military power, uh, second to ours perhaps, but not that much second in terms of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, so they're an important player. Uh, they want to be back on the stage as a power, a superpower. Um, so you can make a case, let's see if we can't work a better relationship with, um, with Putin. Well, George Bush, George W. Bush said he looked in uh, Putin's eyes and saw his soul. 
really interesting. I was with Joe Biden um, last week, I think it was. He was getting an award uh, in Washington. I was um, uh, introducing him. And uh, he said to, at, at the time, he said, uh, he met with uh, President um, uh, Putin, and he said, I look into your eyes, and uh, you're just a, a, a cold stone killer. He says, and Putin's response, now we understand ourselves. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> so it's in Putin's interest to weaken the United States. He's doing that internationally. He's doing, he tried it in Germany. He's tried it in, in, in Britain. Didn't succeed in France, but nonetheless tried. Um, but his goal is to weaken a sense of consensus here in the United States, placing ads to try and divide us uh, along racial lines. Uh, the racial divide is already quite deep. And then targeting um, the, um, the racial, the, I should say the racism that is in our country, and to drive it even further apart serves their interests. So I don't know what uh, he wants to do in, in uh, Korea. I do know what he does not want to see. He does not want to see the United States uh, go to war in that region. He, neither he nor President Xi Jinping uh, want to see that outcome. So whatever he can do, he's going to, he said, try and provide food and fuel and support for the North Koreans at a point where it's undercutting what we're seeking to do, even the, the sanctions they voted against. So they're playing kind of a double game here. Um, but it comes back to uh, Ambassador Grossman saying the key players, not what Kim Jong-un thinks that the president is saying, is what the, Ch the Chinese think. Do they believe he is in fact prepared to take military action? Or is he engaging in taunting? Now, for some of you in the audience, you may have seen I appeared on uh, CNN a couple of days ago. And uh, I was asked about North Korea, and I said, well, the one thing the president has intervened now in NFL. He's telling the NFL owners who they should fire for not standing up for the flag. And I said, that's important, but I hope the NFL will give him some instruction or offer him some instruction. No taunting, no taunting allowed. Because when the NFL says, we don't want players taunting other players because it's gonna provoke a physical reaction. And so they say, that's banned, you can't do it. And what I would like to see is banning the taunting at the geopolitical level. I don't think it elevates us. I think it, it lowers us. I think it lowers respect for us. And it doesn't produce anything but a counter taunt from Kim Jong-un. And if we really reduced ourselves to that. So a no taunting rule would be really important. And plus other leaders look to us. Uh, Xi Jinping is gonna meet with the president soon. Uh, what do they think? about uh, the, uh, the president. Do they see him as being serious-minded? Do they see him as uh, engaging in this kind of profit? Is he trying to provoke Kim Jong-un to do something stupid? To take some kind of a shot at one of our planes, or one of our boats, ships, and then we can respond with overwhelming force and start to the, the escalation? Is that what we have in mind? I, I hope not, I don't think so, but is it possible? The answer is yes. That's why it should be a no taunting, no trash talking. No trash talking allowed, because now Kim Jong-un is calling him a dotard. Yeah. You know, I haven't heard that that's word in a, a long time. I had to look it up. For me. But is that, what I mean, does that say, though? I mean, what does that say? Does we have to say to the President of the United States, no taunting. This is what I'm suggesting. I think, yeah. look, the President has good people around him. I, I, I have enormous respect for his national security team, the Secretary of State. Uh, I know them all, and um, 
they are dedicated uh, to trying to hold this together. Now, people are now being critical, saying, isn't this kind of weird? People are now trying to control the president? Is that the mission of uh, public servants? The answer is no. Uh, and it gets back, I, mean, I know we have a, short, a shortage of time, but it gets back to this whole notion of leadership and public service. And that's what I think is missing right now. When you say you're a public servant, what does that mean? You serve only the interests of the American people. Uh, I put it, I quote uh, from uh, Justice, uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, and who said that a trustee, a fiduciary, which is what all of us have been, we owe you something higher than the morals of the marketplace. What works in the marketplace is not acceptable for, uh, for public trustees. And he used a, a phrase, this is Benjamin Cardoso, he used the phrase, a fiduciary owes you the punctilio, fancy word, punctilio of an honor, the most sensitive. That's what we have to get back to for people serving in public office. Serve only the public, not your commercial interests, not your self-interest, only the service of the American people. I desperately would like to ask you all about 10 more questions, but it is now 3.28 and we are out of time. Can I yield, can I yield one, uh, one of my last two minutes to uh, Ambassador Grossman and to uh, Secretary Card? All right. I've got two minutes left. Now. <laughs> okay. then, I'm gonna, then I am going to ask you two very quick questions. Um, what do you see as the biggest threat facing the United States right now? And what advice would you give to this unconventional president to solve it? Ambassador Grossman, I'll start with you. Well, first, let me just say, I, um, I thought what Secretary Cohen said about public service, and Secretary Card and I were talking about it before, that's right. And if I could just, again, speak for 30 seconds to the students in the audience, especially those students we met at lunch today. You know, if you're studying public affairs, if you're studying international relations, I hope you're still interested in going into the military and going into the foreign service, going to serve your government, because we need the best people possible in this sort of high standard of public service, also very important thing. Um, Felicia, for me, there are, there are a huge number of challenges. You know, when I think about Charlottesville, and I think about the kind of words, but you know, to go back to what Secretary Card said, this is an unconventional president because he got elected unconventionally. And I come back and back and back to thinking this. What's the biggest problem in the United States and maybe in the world today? It's the lack of economic growth, right? I think the fact that the United States of America for these sort of past few years, certainly since 2008, 2009, hasn't grown at the rate to sort of increase people's capacity and to increase people's possibilities and to make them feel that their children are gonna be better off than they were. And you can see this all around the world. And if the United States is going to continue to grow at 1.6, 1.8, 1 1.9%, I don't think it's enough. And so I think the consensus question for politicians and for citizens is today, all around the world, how do you start growing again? And to Secretary Cohen's point, it isn't just the marketplace, right? So it has to have some meaning as well. It's just not about economic growth. It's about the future. Um, and I think about if, and I'm no big expert, but if you think about Britain, Britain had been growing for the last five years, 4% a year. You think there'd be Brexit? Hard to imagine. Think 11 people would be voting for Marie Le Pen if France had been growing 
at a 4% rate over the past 10 years. I mean, think about all of these questions around the world. And so of all the things, and I know there are millions of things that we need to take care of, I think there's a core fundamental question about getting the economy in the world moving again so people have some perspective about their future. Thank you. Secretary Card? I just want us all to recognize the burden that a president carries. And it is a unique burden. Article 2 in the Constitution lists the oath that the president takes. It's the shortest oath taken by anyone who serves in government. It calls for him to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. That's the job. Um, However, the president should come to recognize, and I believe he has, that he cannot keep his oath without other people keeping their oath. And many of them take an oath that's pretty common to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We all took that oath. Yes. But there are others who take an oath, and many of them are very young, 18, 19, 20 years old, and they have uh, joined the military. Unlike when Bill Cohen and I were young, we potentially could have been drafted into the military. They joined, and they agreed, and they took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then they took another oath that said that they would follow the command of the commander-in-chief. And there is no conditional clause to it. It doesn't say, if I voted for them. It doesn't say, if I agree with them. It doesn't say, even if the French give permission. It says, follow the commander, the commander-in-chief. And no president can keep their oath without asking others to keep their oath. And unfortunately, there are frequently consequences that no president would ever invite on anyone. And that is a burden a president carries for the rest of their life. So I want our president to recognize that burden, which I'm confident he does. But I want the rest of us to understand the burden is much greater than we realize because I'm a witness to how former presidents still carry the burden. That never goes away. And thank, thank people who have the courage to take that second oath and to respond to the call to duty and make a sacrifice so that we could have a debate like we've had tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Ambassador Mark Grossman, Secretary Andrew Card, Secretary William Cohen, thank you so much for giving us your words of wisdom, your expertise. Thank you to the audience for attending. My name's Felicia Knight. Thank you. Until the next Cohen Lecture Series. That was the 2017 Cohen Lecture at the University of Maine, recorded on October 13th and brought to you courtesy of UMaine's Cohen Institute for Leadership and Public Service and with the assistance of John Greenman. I'm Amy Brown. Join me here for Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture every Tuesday at WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And keep it tuned here for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, followed by Jazz Alchemy and a Night of Great Music.